I'm thankful for all who have led us so beautifully in worship today. Also very thankful to point out this rose here uh, on the pulpit. The rosebud in today's service is in honor of Theodore Isaac Griggs, born February 27th, 2023, to Jackie and Stephen Griggs. We rejoice with their whole family in welcoming little Theo. Today we continue a sermon series called Harbingers of the Cross. We are looking at uh, events and occurrences toward the end of Jesus' life that point toward his death. And today I want to draw your attention to John 12, verses 1 through 11. I will read from the New Revised Standard Version, and the title of the sermon is An Odd Inauguration. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. When the great crowd of the Jews learned that he was there, they came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death as well, since it was on account of him that many of the Jews were deserting and were believing in Jesus. Let us pray. Lord God, in this preaching moment, I simply ask that you would help me to speak your word, help them to hear your word, and Lord, help us all to do your word. I pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. There's an undertaker I know who lives in another state. From the age of 12, he knew he wanted to be a mortician. So after he finished high school, he went off to mortuary school. He got his degree, moved back home, and started working in the funeral business. Eventually, he and a partner started their own funeral home. They run their business like a ministry, extending genuine care to grieving families and granting dignity to the deceased. 
My friend does most of the embalming himself. It's his trade. It's his passion to prepare bodies for burial. And he is really good at what he does. Still, if he and I were having a meal together one day, and he suddenly started to prepare my body for burial right there at the table, I'm sure I would flip out. I bring this up because Jesus is enjoying a nice dinner at the home of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, when suddenly Mary pours a pound of expensive perfume all over Jesus' feet. It was roughly 12 ounces, a soda can's size of pure nard, a high-dollar import from India. The pungent fragrance immediately filled every corner of the house. It was probably enough to keep Jesus smelling good for a week. Why would Mary do such a thing? Jesus relates it to his upcoming burial, suggesting that Mary had started the embalming process on his body. Nowadays, morticians inject preservatives into the arteries, but back then they anointed corpses with spices and perfumes. So here Jesus is, healthy, vibrant, in his 30s, and a friend begins to embalm his body at dinner. I would have flipped out. But Jesus seems honored. Watching this unfold, Judas pipes up saying, Hey, this is a waste. Shouldn't this pricey perfume have been sold instead and the money given to the poor? Judas's motives are shady, but his critique is worth considering. The perfume cost a full year's pay. It was a rather luxurious possession. Wouldn't it have been better to sell it and use the money to aid the destitute? In many cases, this critique is valid. Eight years ago, when a megachurch pastor announced he was seeking donations to buy a $60 million private jet so he could share the gospel all around the world, Judas's critique would have been valid. Nine years ago, when a bishop in Atlanta took money earmarked for religious and charitable purposes and used it to build himself a 2.2 million dollar mansion. Judas's critique would have been valid. And many other times and places when Christians and churches have made ostentatious expenditures, shouldn't the money instead go to help people in need? Yes, yes, yes. But in this particular case, 
Jesus is still with them in the flesh. Nothing is better withheld when we have a chance to honor Jesus directly. Mary's uninhibited devotion is therefore exemplary. If that perfume was something she had spent her life savings to buy, it was well spent on Jesus. If that uh, perfume was a special gift she had received from a dear friend, it was well spent on Jesus. If that uh, perfume was a precious heirloom passed down for generations in her family, it was well spent on Jesus. At least that's what Jesus thinks. Notice how he rushes to her defense. Leave her alone, he says, for you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Some worry that Jesus sounds uncompassionate here. Others cite this verse as if it's Jesus' resignation to the inevitability of poverty. But he's actually indicating his disciples' responsibility to alleviate poverty. Jesus is alluding to Deuteronomy 15.11, which says this, Since there will never cease to be some in need on the earth, I therefore command you, open your hand to the poor and needy neighbor in your land. In light of this background, Jesus is not saying, look, there will always be poor people around. You might as well get used to it. There's nothing you can really do about it. No, he's saying you will always have the responsibility and divine calling to serve the poor with an open hand. His statement should never be taken as a lack of compassion For the poor, this is Jesus we're talking about who said in Luke 4, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. This is Jesus we're talking about who said in Matthew 25, Just as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. This is Jesus we're talking about who said in Luke uh, 14, when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. This is Jesus we're talking about who said, give to everyone who begs from you. This is Jesus we're talking about who said, when you give alms, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. He clearly summons us to be merciful, charitable, generous, and helpful to persons experiencing poverty. The tireless pursuit of socioeconomic equity for the poor is a vital way to honor Jesus Christ. Yet since honoring Christ is the primary goal of his disciples, Mary's use of the expensive perfume in this specific circumstance is perfectly appropriate. Nonetheless, it's noteworthy that Jesus defends her action. You know, he might have said, 
why are you embalming me? Do you want me to die or something? But he accepts her gesture because he is about to die. He might have said, why are you blowing all that expensive stuff on me? I'm not worthy of all that. But he welcomes her excessive devotion because he is worthy. For he is the king, the Messiah, the anointed one. It's important to understand that in ancient Israel, the inauguration of a king occurred by anointing. Usually a priest or prophet would anoint the king's head with oil. That's why the words king and anointed one are synonyms in the Bible. The king was literally the anointed one. For example, in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1, the prophet Samuel anoints Saul as king by pouring oil on his head. There's no prophet with oil in John 12. Only a humble woman with costly perfume. There's no priest with oil in John 12. Only a faithful disciple with expensive ointment. She does not anoint a king of political clout either. She does not anoint a monarch with military muscle. She anoints a king for his burial. Jesus is anointing as king... And his anointing for burial are identical. His inauguration ceremony and the embalming of his body are one and the same. What an odd inauguration. Can you imagine if a world leader today, say the Chancellor of Germany or the President of Brazil, were inaugurated before the whole nation by way of an undertaker preparing their body for burial? That would be utterly absurd. Rulers are supposed to look royal, eminent, powerful. But Jesus is a different kind of king. His royalty is his demise. His eminence is his crucifixion. His power is his weakness. His ascendancy is his death. Jesus is not only the suffering savior, he is also the suffering sovereign. Mary does not anoint him to ride into town on a majestic stallion, but on a humble donkey. She does not anoint him to rule with an iron fist, but with a nail-scarred hand. She does not anoint him to wear a, a crown of gold, but a crown of thorns. 
She does not anoint his head, but his feet, thereby anticipating Jesus' humble act of washing his disciples' feet. Mary's spiritual intuition is through the roof. Her discipleship IQ is out of this world. She is an extraordinary follower of Jesus. Her anointing of his feet instead of his head conveys that he is an upside-down kind of king who will not rule by dominance but by service, who will not rule with severity but with sacrifice, who will not rule with harshness but with love, who will not rule from a lofty throne but from a lowly cross. Modern day Christians do well to remember that we worship a crucified king. It's easy to forget that our king is not into worldly power. Our king is not into conventional political clout. Our king rules a kingdom that is not of this world. This does not mean he doesn't care about earthly governments. It means he transcends them. It means he is king of all kings. He is lord of all lords. He is ruler of all rulers. He is therefore worthy of the greatest honor we could possibly confer. This is why Mary does not honor Jesus sparingly, but extravagantly. This is why she does not honor him in a, a careful, calculated way, but in a lavish way. If we could follow Mary's example of extravagant devotion, our faith would sparkle like a ruby in the July sun. If we could follow Mary's example of all-out discipleship, our witness would soar like a condor clearing the mountaintops. We might ask what compelled Mary to honor Christ in such a costly way. Why would she pour out such sacrificial devotion to a man who was about to die. Well, just days earlier, she had attended her brother Lazarus's funeral. She had seen him buried in a tomb. She had mourned his passing. She might have even delivered his eulogy. But then she witnessed as Jesus came to Lazarus' grave and called his name, Lazarus, come out! And Lazarus arose from the dead. Lazarus was a walking miracle. 
miracle at the dinner party that night. John doesn't want us to forget it. He says a couple of different times whom Jesus had raised from the dead. He was a living, breathing miracle sitting at the dinner table. He might have still had cobwebs on his elbows, you know, from all that time he spent in the tomb he just got out of. But he was alive and well due to the saving power of Christ. <laughs> he might have still had some serious soreness in his back and a mighty crick in his neck after lying dead for four solid days. But he was alive and kicking due to the saving power of Christ. <laughs> Indeed, that's the whole reason they were having the dinner party to begin with, to celebrate the saving power of Christ. Back in 2007, a construction worker named Wesley Autry was standing at a subway station in New York City. He was waiting for a train there when a young man nearby suffered a seizure and subsequently fell onto the tracks. Mr. Autry saw that a train was fast approaching, but he jumped down onto the tracks and working quickly and courageously saved the young man's life just in the nick of time, risking his own life in the process. He was immediately hailed as the subway hero. Countless reporters interviewed him. He was a featured guest on The Late Show. Time Magazine named him one of the most 100 influential people of the year. He was even recognized at the State of the Union Address. It's only fitting because heroes that save people from a near-death experience are impressive. But how much greater then is a hero that saves somebody from a death experience? Lazarus was not almost killed. He was dead and buried for four days. But he bounced back to life when Jesus called him out of the grave. Jesus didn't save him from dying. He saved him out of death itself. The reason Mary worshipped the crucified king is because she knew his resurrection power. The reason Mary poured out her devotion is because she knew Jesus could bring life to the lifeless, vitality to the deceased, resurrection to post-mortem Bodies. The reason Mary so lavishly honored Jesus is because she knew he had the power to overcome, overwhelm, and overturn the grave. Maybe she knew Jesus would succumb to the power of death just so he could conquer it. Maybe she knew he would enter the jaws of the grave just so he could defang the grave. Maybe she knew he would lay down his life 
just so he could take it up again. Maybe she knew he would be crucified and buried so he could rise again. Maybe she knew he would give himself up on the cross so that he could get himself up from the grave on the third day. In any case, Mary's extravagant devotion to the crucified king is fueled by her faith in his resurrection of power. Only such lavish dedication, only such overflowing commitment, only such sacrificial love poured out befits the king who says, I am the resurrection and the life. Amen.